We'll hear argument first this morning in number 97-1235, the City of Monterey versus Del Monte Dunes, etc. cetera. Uh, Mr. Juhas, is that the correct pronunciation of your yes. name? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. We are asking this Court to decide three issues in this inverse condemnation case. First and most important, the constitutional standard for review of a city's land use decision does not allow the imposition of takings liability based upon a de novo uh, second-guessing of the city's policy and factual determinations. Second, courts, not juries, are the appropriate decision-makers for all inverse condemnation liability issues. And finally, the concept of rough proportionality does not apply to this case where the city denied the proposed development. What ties these issues together are the concepts of deference and the concepts of the limited role of the Constitution and the federal courts in the local land use planning process. This case is not atypical in some respects. The city was faced with a complex decision. It had to reconcile competing interests, sift through facts, and exercise its discretion and judgment, and it did so. Five times. It did so, Your Honor. It was a complicated project. In this particular case, it only exercised its discretion once that is directly relevant, and that is its consideration of the restoration plan presented by the respondent. This was the fifth plan the presented, right? Each one was successively rejected for a different reason each time? The initial rejections were for density. The fifth one was rejected down for two reasons only. There was access and there was the restoration plan, and that was the first time that, in fact, the City Council had faced the question of whether there was an adequate restoration plan. And this is plan. typical, you say? It is typical in this com- kind of complex. Mm-hmm. It was a complicated project. Well, in asking whether the decision in question was reasonable, the uh, history of the zoning and of previous attempts are relevant, are they not, in determining the reasonableness of the City's action? I submit that the issue is not the reasonableness of the City's action, but rather the issue is whether, in fact, the City's action, in the first instance, uh, bears a reasonable relationship to a legitimate, well, legitimate goal. Well, could you suppose you told the jury the issue for you to decide is was the decision based on reason? Did it substantially advance a legitimate public goal? Could the jury answer that question? I believe that that is two different questions. Well, that was your argument to the jury. <laughs> I've read the record. I submit that the question that was presented to the jury in the instructions was, does the city's action bear a reasonable relationship to a legitimate goal. Here, you said, did it substantially advance a legitimate goal? You, you, you said that's the issue for the jury, and you said the issue for you to decide was the decision based on reason. Those are two questions, and you said those are presented to the jury. And it seems to me that the past history of what the developer was required to do is relevant to that. And we didn't argue that the jury could not consider that past history. But on the specific issue that the jury was asked to address, over our objection, because we continue to believe that that is an issue for the court, on the first prong, the substantially advance of legitimate public interest, that prong, which derives essentially from substantive due process language, that is a deferential test. Well, are you, are you saying that, that the jury was not entitled to consider the length of time that these proceedings were underway at all? I'm not suggesting that, Your Honor. Because how, how long were they underway from beginning to end? The first time that the city was presented with this development application was 1983. 
The final consideration was 1986. There was some additional planning before 1983 because the local coastal plan was being implemented or developed at that time. What happened between 1986 and now? After 1986, the testimony is that the developer made no further effort to develop the property or contact the city. The property was sold in 1991 for $4.5 million, approximately $800,000 more than the developer paid, and uh, something less than... But we, we have a lawsuit here. Surely the lawsuit must have begun sometime after 1986, uh, one hopes. Well, one hopes. Believe it or not, the lawsuit began in 1986. In 1986, the lawsuit was filed. There was a ripeness challenge. That went up to the Ninth Circuit, was reversed. It came back, and that resulted in the trial that brings it May I ask about that ripeness challenge, and it relates to how significant this jury trial issue is, because as I understand it, the Ninth Circuit said it was ripe because at the time, California had no proceeding which the developer could bring. But now California does, and as I understand our case law, a developer in the situation that this one is in would be obliged to go to the state court, not federal court. Is that correct? That is correct, Your Honor. And under the California procedure, the liability issue would not go to a jury? That is also correct, Your Honor. So so is there, now that the states have been told that they must have these proceedings, is this question of jury trial or not just a question for these cases hanging over from the 80s? I submit, Your Honor, I certainly submit that the issue of the jury trial is very significant to my client in this case. It is not, does not have, I think, great significance directly in cases litigated in the state courts. Does it have any continuing significance at all? That's my question, because if there's no ripe challenge until you've gone to the state, the state would decide those questions. The state would decide the liability questions, and then you might have some constitutional question about it. There are two issues that raise. One, which was raised by the uh, amicus filed on behalf of some of the states, is there might be under some circumstances a question as to whether, in fact, the state determination would be fully collaterally stoppable in a subsequent case or whether it would give rise to collateral litigation. But I think of more importance is that depending upon the nature and the reason why it's determined that there is a right to jury trial, the character of the issue is important. If, in fact, the issue is one that requires a deferential standard, if it is one that is akin to substantive due process, that is an issue that cuts across simply the procedural issue as to who decides and goes to what standard should be used. If the Ninth Circuit standard, the reasonable standard, is one that says when a government agency makes a decision, could be establishing seismic standards, it could be anything, and all a developer or property owner needs it to do is to say, you know, we have an expert. And our expert says that we can build safely. We can essentially dispute the fact that you need these standards. Or we can say that those standards are excessive. Well, let's talk about — we're dealing with inverse condemnation here. And it's a two-part inquiry if we follow Agins. I don't know what the inquiry is. What do you think it is? I believe — Agins says two things. Uh, That uh, the city's action has to substantially advance a legitimate purpose and deny uh, the subject property all economically viable use. Yes, that is what Agin says. That's what the jury was instructed here. And they found 
on both those points in favor of the respondent? We don't know that. Well, they gave a general verdict. They gave a general verdict. They found on one or the other or both. Was it an and or an or instruction? Were they told to find that it takes both or were they told either one? Either one. Either one. And that's one of the — It was a general verdict. It was a general verdict on that claim. Even even if uh, we were to conclude that there were — were one or more issues in here that were legal issues for the court, it wouldn't require a new trial because the the court could look at the evidence and resolve it anyway. It's not like we're having to send it back for a new trial, regardless of the answer. That's correct, and I believe the Ninth Circuit, um, in fact, indicated that in its opinion. And there are certainly some factual issues here, like um, economically viable use, that traditionally would go to a jury, it seems to me. Those are certainly ad hoc factual inquiries. However, they are not inquiries that I believe are properly decided by the jury, because the decision of economically viable use is not simply a question of valuation. That is certainly a component. But going with that is the question of what is the reasonable investment-backed expectations of the property. But surely a jury can be charged on, on, on that. I mean, juries decide all sorts of questions where they get legal instructions from the judge, but, and they decide the factual component of the question. Juries are very adept at resolving uh, historical issues of fact. Juries are not adept at employing balancing tests or well, multi-factor analysis. But ju- juries decide questions of land value all the time in the state courts and condemnation actions. California, Arizona. Mr. Chief Justice, that is absolutely correct. And if the only issue on a denial of all economically viable use was a valuation question, I would say the jury had the competence. But it goes far beyond that. For example, even where it does deprive property of all economically viable use, there is also the issue of, essentially, is the intended use akin to a nuisance? The Lucas issue, that is an issue which is akin to a public nuisance determination, which is historically made by courts. Well, well you, you, you cast the case as if the jury is going to be assessing the reasonableness of the zoning ordinance. But that's not what the jury was instructed. That's not what you argued to the jury. That's not what Mr. Jacobson argued. They said, was this decision a reasonable implementation of that ordinance? And that's different. And juries talk about reasonableness all the time. That's the whole law of torts. Juries do decide reasonable questions and decide reasonable conduct because that is the underlying legal standard of liability. Where the standard of liability, I submit, is in fact, one, does an action substantially advance a public purpose? And where that standard derives from substantive due process principles, which carries with it a level of deference, carries with it the idea that we don't want juries coming in in every case and saying, I don't think that the city's action reasonably implemented zoning. That will depend upon, invariably, complicated facts and subsidiary policy decisions as well. Well, you instruct the jury that the uh, city is entitled to the greatest of deference and and leeway, but that if they have been unreasonable or, say, in bad — suppose the jury is in — the planning commissioner is in bad faith uh, in implementing the ordinance. Could Could that question go to the jury? That question did not go to the jury. In could fact, that question, in a proper case, go to the jury? In a proper case, that question could go to the jury. In this case, the jury was instructed that they were to disregard motives because there was no evidence of bad faith. And, in fact, the trial court, considering the same record, concluded that the city acted reasonably. They were not attempting to forestall all reasonable development. Could, could the jury do this? This is — am I, am I right — you can help me with this. Am I right in thinking that we're, we're, we're reviewing a judgment that awarded your opponent — 
1.45 million for a temporary taking, which I take it was for the period of time uh, from like maybe when they bought the land or something until California paid the 4.5 million or 4.8. That that was the judgment we're reviewing. I, I may not have it precisely right, but roughly. The taking damages went all the way to trial. They went four or years beyond when they actually sold the property. But, but it's a temporary it's a, taking. It is, Your Honor. All right. Now, if that's so, and if I believe the jury could assess this question, had it during that time been deprived of all value, suppose that's a jury question, in my mind. Suppose that they can decide that question, whether or not all value disappears from the property, therefore it warrants. And moreover, the jury could assess the amount. Right. If I believe those two things, is there any reason for me to go further in this case? Uh, I believe there is, Your Honor. What? First, in this case, the evidence was undisputed. And, in fact, the jury was instructed that if they found any substantial value. Well, so could anyone have found, could anyone, any reasonable person have doubted that the property lost all its value during that temporary time? Is there some evidence here? Is there some dispute? I mean, I know there is a dispute as to whether or not when they got paid the money later, I mean, they had $4.8 million. I understand that dispute. But during the temporary time, is there any dispute that it had no value? Oh, very much so. In fact, the plaintiff's expert opined that immediately after the city's action, the property <coughs> retained $2.9 million in value. And he opined that that value from that point in time went up so that when the property was sold, to the state, in its regulated state, it was worth $4.5 million. Now, that was, to be fair, according to that expert, a diminution value. In fact, the diminution, I believe, was in the ballpark of about 50, about 55 percent. But, in fact, there was substantial value the entire time. And that's why, when the jury was instructed, if this property has substantial value, you should conclude that there has been no denial of economically viable use. Is there any value other than the value that would come about by selling it to the state for the use as a seashore? Oh, I believe so. I mean, this project was turned down for two reasons and two reasons only. And all that had to be done was to resubmit the site plan that had a better restoration plan or, in fact, buy the property needed for the access. I thought they did that five times to try to get a better restoration plan. The very first time that the restoration plan was ever even put together in draft form was in 1984, shortly before the City Council overruled the Planning Commission and approved conditionally the 190-unit development. And the conditions were, you need to show that you can do this development consistent with habitat protection. And, in fact, they went through a year's process. City Council expressly said, we can't assess the adequacy of this habitat plan because we don't know enough. You need to talk to Fish and Wildlife and Fish and Game. Finally, in 1986, they, for the first time, said, we have the information. You have not shown us this is good enough. The landowner here uh, essentially thinks uh, that it was getting jerked around, that basically the city didn't want this land used for anything and wanted to retain it empty so it could be used as a seashore. That's that's what this thing is about. Now, let's talk about deference to the city's judgment. I can understand. Our normal rule is that we do defer, and if there's a rational basis, uh, that's all we look to. But where you have a consistent process, as is alleged here, of turning down one plan, the next plan, the next plan, okay, I'll do this to satisfy you, isn't there some point at which, although there's a rational basis for the fifth decision, a rational basis for the fourth and the third and the second and the first, you begin to smell a rat? 
And at that point, can't we say, despite our normal rational basis review, there's some other other factor that begins to come in here. And, and that is, uh, at some point, you, you can say this is simply unreasonable. I submit, Justice Scalia, that that inquiry does not occur in the first prong of Agins as to whether the decision substantially advances a legitimate use. That comes into the second prong as to whether, in fact, there are any economically viable uses available. If, in fact, the evidence demonstrates the city intent never to approve any development, the trier of fact could conclude, well, I guess this thing doesn't have any economically viable use, and presumably it would have no value. But on the first prong, the first prong simply says, is there, in fact, the city's action denying this development, leaving the property as it is, does that have a substantial relationship to a legitimate goal? Whether that goal be open space, whether that goal well, be what, what, if, what if the commission, instead of saying, no, you can't, you, I will reject your plan, FIDA, says, we're going to reject it for 100 units, but we'll approve it for 10 units. Now, there the owner can't say it was denied all economic value. But isn't it possible that an element of bad faith would come in somewhere uh, along the lines of Justice Scalia? I'm not saying it happened here, but if, if a jury or a finder of fact was convinced that the city council was simply going through motions here, that it was determined not to really appraise the, uh, appraise the situation in the light of the, the ordinance, uh, couldn't a finder of fact, either a jury or a judge, say that an element of bad faith plays a part in the decision? Again, I submit that the element of bad faith goes into whether, in fact, the property has been deprived of all e- economically viable use. But what the it, Chief Justice is asking, and I think it was prompted by Justice Scalia's question in my mind as well, let's assume that the city is unreasonable in the implementation of its planning ordinances and that it's in bad faith in the implementation of its planning ordinance. The property still has an economically uh, an economic viability. Is there the city still liable in damages for that unreasonable treatment of the landowner? Not under the Fifth Amendment. There may be a remedy under state law, and if, in fact, the city participates in an effort to deliberately deflate the value of the property and for purposes of condemnation, there's a remedy for oppressive and unreasonable pre-condemnation conduct, certainly under state law. But well, doesn't may I try? Come, why doesn't it come under the other, the, the, the other of, of, of the two criteria? Why do you insist that we force this under the economically viable use criterion rather than under whether it substantially furthers any, uh, any valid uh, uh, purpose? Because looking at the, what the jury was instructed in this case as to a valid purpose, which was habitat protection, health and safety, the denial of this development, you know, did unquestionably Not if have there was bad faith. If there was bad faith, it, it rationally could further that purpose, but it wasn't being used for that purpose. No. In this case, there was no finding of that. The Court was directed the jury to disregard questions of motive, and certainly I understand that the respondent felt that, in fact, they were being jerked around. The respondent acquired this property and only pursued two applications. The one that got approved, I, I correct myself, one application. The only application that this respondent pursued was the one in 1986. They bought okay. the property. Thank you, Mr. Uhas. Uh, Mr. Needler, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, 
Before discussing the substantially uh, advanced leg legitimate government purpose uh, aspect of this case, I would like to briefly address uh, a another point which the Ninth Circuit addressed, and that is that the Ninth Circuit, without any prompting by the parties, uh, brought this, this Court's decisions in Nolan and Dolan into this case and said that the overall denial of the plan in this case had to be assessed under the rough proportionality formulation that this Court uh, announced in the Dolan case. And, of course, the jury wasn't instructed on that theory. The oral arguments weren't on that theory. I I'm not sure why that issue is, is in the case if the, if the verdict can be sustained on another basis. Well, I, uh, but it, that seemed to be a, a, an important aspect to the Court of Appeals' uh, affirmance of the judgment on both page 16 and page 20 of the, uh, of the appendix to the petition, the Court relies upon the rough proportionality standard as a basis for finding that the jury could have found that there was no uh, sufficient evidence to support the, uh, uh, the City Council's uh, verdict. And um, it, it may be sufficient for this Court simply to vacate the judgment and eliminate that discussion from the Ninth Circuit's decision. But we do want to make clear our position on that question, that the, this Court's decisions in Nolan and Dolan imposed that special rule for a special situation where the concern was that the City might actually be extorting a, a right of physical access, essentially an interest in property on the land, and using the occasion of a permit approval in order to extort that. It was a special rule for that situation. In fact, in, in the Dolan case, the Court specifically distinguished that situation from one in which the, uh, you simply had regulations that controlled the landowner's use of her own property as opposed to having someone come on well, to the suppose property. we agree with you that the <laughs> Court of Appeals got it wrong on the Dolan point. What is uh, — how does — how would reversing that or vacating it affect the balance of the decision, if at all? Well, I, uh, the, the question then would be whether the uh, Court of Appeals was correct in affirming the judgment on the ground that there was sufficient evidence from which the jury could have concluded that, uh, that there was not a reasonable basis for the action in this case. And that really goes to the substantial relationship prong. And we have, we have two basic problems with that. One is uh, we, we believe that the Court's uh, formulation of that aspect of, a, of finding a con compensable taking in Agins was erroneous, and that the question of whether a um, land use regulation substantially advances a legitimate governmental purpose well, was, that, was that challenged by the petitioner, the Agins rule? It was, it was not, Mr. Chief Justice. Ordinarily, we, uh, we don't accept any new questions or positions from an amicus. I, I, I understand that. The, re the, the reason that I, that, I, that I do think it's relevant to the Court's consideration, however, is the Court is being asked to, uh, to lay down a rule for the lower courts in terms of how a jury or a, if, if it's a jury issue or how a trial court should address that question. Specifically, the petitioner is arguing, and we think quite correctly, that if this is a proper standard in takings analysis. Well, but that, that's not any particular justification for taking a new point from an amicus. You're simply saying you think it's wrong. Presumably no. all new points from amicus are based on that. Right. My, my point was that, that it, in order to decide the question of whether deference to the agency is appropriate and whether the, the question should be whether there was sufficient evidence before the City Council from which it could conclude that there was a, a rational basis for this action. There is the antecedent question as to whether that is a proper inquiry at all. And we think that where you have an antecedent question upon which the, the standard of review well, depends, you, it would be proper you, for the Do court. you take the position that the legitimacy of the government purpose is irrelevant to the inverse condemnation question? We, we believe that it is irrelevant to the question of whether a compensable taking has occurred. That's quite — that is — That's that is hard a, to derive from Agins, certainly. No. 
But if, if you look at Agins, what the Court recited for that proposition was this Court's decision in Nectow, which was a due process case. And what the Court said there was that the, that the uh, action did not substantially advance a legitimate governmental purpose because it was arbitrary and irrational. It was language that spoke in due process terms. And I think this goes to Justice Kennedy's point, too, in focusing on the reasonableness of the past history of the consideration of this project proposal. That is essentially an objection, I think, that sounds in procedural due process terms. Unreasonable delay and that sort of thing are, are procedural due process or, in the first instance, governed by state APA standards or would, would this be standards. A, Mr. Needler, would this be a, a, a possible different way of looking at it in non-procedural terms? We, the discussion up to this point has been largely in terms of the language that was used in Aiken. But if you look at the, the, the Penn Central multi-factor formulation, uh, one of the sort of broad subjects to be addressed is the, is the nature of the, of the governmental action. And if we take that into consideration properly, uh, isn't the issue of bad faith something that may be considered uh, right up front under, under that particular heading? I think not. I, the, the purpose of the Just Compensation Clause is, is to address the situation where the government has taken lawful action, but lawful action that, that benefits the entire community in a way that it's unfair to visit that cost of the lawful action on a, on a particular individual. Bad faith, arbitrary action, those are not aspects of lawful governmental action. Those are aspects of unlawful governmental action. And as this Court uh, said way back in the, Penn, in, in the Pennsylvania Coal Company case, the, the basis for the award of compensation under the Fifth Amendment, it presupposes that the action is being taken for a public purpose. It, it presupposes lawful, proper governmental action. It is a question of who must pay for it. Uh, and we think this is reinforced by the structure of the, of the Fifth Amendment, which separately addresses the question of the, of the propriety of the gover- governmental purpose. When you get it, uh, is it, is it relevant here? It keeps coming into my mind that the damages here were awarded for a temporary taking. And the conditions of obtaining damages for a temporary taking are? Well, uh, it would the way the jury was instructed here, either that the property. But what is the fact? What is the what do our case? What do the court's cases say? You get money for a temporary taking. You get does, does the total value have to be destroyed? The, the court the court has said if, the, if there was all economic that okay. that is the test. For a temporary the taking that. for a temporary taking total value destroyed plus anything. The court, uh, the court has not really spelled out what the, what the standards are, but it has typically come up in terms of saying that the property has been deprived of all economic all economically. And if it has, uh, see, that's what keeps bothering me. We're, this is a temporary takings case, I take it, and everybody's arguing as if it's not. So I must be wrong, but why? Well, first of all, I, we, th- we think if, if you focus on the deprivation of all economic value in this case, that would simply be impossible to find because, the, as Petitioner's Counsel pointed out, that the respondent's own expert said this land was three mil- worth $3 million after the permit was denied. That's $80,000 an acre. So it would be, I think, impossible to say that this land was deprived of all economic value. And, and therefore, we think it would be inconsistent with the purposes of the Just Compensation Clause, where you don't have, you don't have anything approaching this sort of physical appropriation. What, what about, Mr. Needler, if, 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 if this is granting uh, the, uh, for the sake of argument, the correctness of, uh, of, of your proposition that uh, uh, this good faith factor is a due process concern uh, ordinarily, does it not become a proper concern in a temporary takings case, even though it may not be in a permanent takings case? I, I, because I, the argument here is uh, you, you've effectively taken it during this interim period, 
by jerking me around, by using an essentially unfair procedure uh, for me to get my uh, my rights under the existing ordinance. I, I, as you've said, an essentially unfair procedure, that that, that objection sounds in due process uh, objections. Precisely Indeed, but, but, but that's what — that's why there has been a taking, because you have not used a fair procedure. And, and, and so, at least in the temporary takings cases, if you believe in temporary takings, and maybe you don't believe in temporary takings at all, but once you acknowledge there's such a thing as a temporary taking, what else produces it except, except an unfair procedure? Uh, a, temporary, a temporary taking occurs, as I understand this Court's decision in First English, not, not from unlawful governmental conduct, uh, unlawful procedure, but where there is a substantive limitation on development that is imposed for a temporary period of time. Again, the purpose of the Just Compensation Clause was not to protect the gov- uh, people against arbitrary or unlawful action. It's, it presupposes lawful action. And in the land use area, there are both questions of procedure and questions of so, substance. So you're saying this is not a temporary taking case? That isn't what the I believe it was not properly a temporary. I mean, th- th- it was it was tried on alternative theories that, and and one theory being that that the property was deprived of all economic uh, value, but that simply can't be given. Uh, respondents' own experts saying it was worth three million dollars. Did, did the jury instructions advert to the issue that the action was brought by the buyer, whereas, I guess chronologically, most of the temporary taking, if that's what there was, occurred during the the ownership of the previous owner. Right. The, the buyer buyer shows in action. The premise of the, of the temporary taking award, uh, it began after the, uh, the, the period in which the buyer purchased, uh, purchased the property. Thank you, Mr. Needler. Mr. Berger, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I suppose I ought to start out by referring to uh, Justice Breyer's question and answer it. This is a temporary takings case. This uh, property was taken for a finite period of time, which the jury found under instructions that were, by the way, drafted by the city. Uh, the city got the jury instructed with everything that it wanted uh, and presumably could have offered more if it didn't like the instructions it had. Mr. Berger, I'd like to uh, this jury trial issue, which has been posed as a discrete issue. I have it in my mind, and I may be wrong about this, that as a result of our two decisions, Williamson the last one, there won't be any right claim to be brought in the federal court as a court of first view anymore because the inverse condemnation proceeding will take place, must take place, in the California state courts. Is that right? That's my reading of this court's cases as well, Justice Ginsburg. And do I also understand that these two questions, the economic justification or deprivation, that under the California law, the liability question, that is whether there has been a taking, is done by the judge. I would have to say that's not as clear as counsel for the city uh, represented. Well, what, what cases are you referring to, Mr. Berger, I, I, the last two cases from our court in response to Justice Ginsburg? Oh, I, actually, I thought that that was Justice Ginsburg's reference. I think it, she it was, was referring Williamson was the second one. Williamson and probably First English. Uh, yes, that, and First English, yes. That mandated compensation as a remedy for a regulatory taking. And Judge Wallace, as I recall, said the reason this case is right is that at the time all this happened, California did not have those procedures. That in is place. correct. The, but now this it case, does. This case arose in 1986, one year before First English, at a time when California recognized no compensatory remedy. So that's why this whole 1983 jury trial or not seems to me largely academic. 
not having any continuing importance. It could have little continuing importance, I would Certainly not academic in your case, though. In this case, it was, it was the heart of the case. Well, and in California, uh, juries do in pre-condemnation delay cases, for instance, decide whether the state was unreasonable in delay in condemnation activity under clopping, I take it. That's a jury question. Your Honor, there are many of those kinds of cases in California, and, and I would, uh, I would have to say I cannot put my finger on a citation uh, to an appellate decision that deals with the issue. Uh, I can uh, assure the Court we've tried cases like that in California that have gone to juries and well, uh, in, without in, objection. That's in, why it doesn't go in, up. In California, uh, state condemnation is, is a jury trial, is it not? Because yes. uh, Arizona it is, and we patterned ours after, after California, unlike the federal system where it is not. Yes, Your Honor. And, of course, the, the only issue in a, in a con- direct condemnation case would be the valuation of the property, a major distinction between the kind of case we have here uh, and a condemnation case. But in, in California, uh, those issues, the, the only issues that are left, the valuation issues, are decided by juries. And in the inverse condemnation case, which is new in California, how is that, how is that division? I'm hesitating, uh, Justice Ginsburg, only because there have been so few of them that have reached. Uh, well, I, I don't want to d- detract you on that, but it, it, at least it's my understanding that these cases are not going to come up under 1983 now the way they did. They are, they're very unlikely to make an appearance in the way that this case did, uh, because this Court has ordered California uh, to recognize compensation as a remedy uh, to the extent that California complies with that, and some of us think that it pays only lip service. Uh, these cases will not be filed, at least in the first instance, in federal district court. But getting back to the uh, uh, the reasonableness issue that uh, Council spent uh, so much time on, this is not something uh, that I think was invented uh, for this case. It was not something that was even invented in Agins. This Court's jurisprudence on regulatory takings uh, is based on a determination by a court, whether it be a judge or a jury, of the reasonableness of the conduct of the Does government that regulator. Derive, do you agree from due process concerns? I mean, it's basically whether it's sufficiently arbitrary to violate due process. Well, Your Honor, there, there are certainly some due process aspects that could be raised in such a case. Um, they, they can't, by the way, be raised in the Ninth Circuit any longer. Uh, we briefed this in, in our brief, uh, pointing out to the Court that in an end-bank decision in a case called Armendariz versus Penman, the Ninth Circuit has decided that all property owner claims related to constitutional infirmities have to be brought as takings claims and cannot be brought as due process claims. Uh, there's an Eleventh Circuit opinion in, uh, in a case called uh, Villas of Lake Jackson versus Leon County that reaches that same conclusion. So there are some uh, due process sounding concerns in these cases uh, but at least in the part of the country where we live, we can't raise those on behalf of property owners. Uh, it seems a little odd to me, uh, perhaps to you too, given your uh, representation in the case in your class position, that the judge would find as a matter of law uh, that the uh, planning action was substantively reasonable uh, under uh, due process, but then uh, submit the takings issue to a jury. That, that does seem to me somewhat inconsistent. Well, let me say at least I was disappointed in that result, Your Honor, but I don't think that uh, — I don't think it's terribly inconsistent. It depends on the standard of review that one uses in these two uh, different questions. And 
when, when you look at the standard of review for a due process violation, it's a very low threshold that the city has to climb. Uh, it's a determination that the city did not act arbitrarily. Uh, and once the court makes that determination, as I think it could make legitimately in this case, which is why we did not appeal that, that finding, uh, the city did not act arbitrarily. That doesn't mean that the impact of what it did to this property owner in applying its general uh, planning and zoning laws uh, did not result in a taking. It, it, was, it was not arbitrary, but it was unreasonable? <laughs> it was not a reasonable way for the city to effectuate well, the goal. Well, if it's not a reasonable way, then it was unreasonable, wasn't it? I think it, in, in, in that sense, yes, but I think that it could also pass an arbitrary standard uh, under a due process examination, and I if, think that's what happened here. If this is basically a temporary takings case, and if, and here I'm not certain, the point of the temporary takings uh, doctrine is to stop, uh, say, cities from giving people what one might call the extreme runaround. All right, suppose that's the point of it. And uh, if that's so, uh, we could answer the first question, I guess. We could answer the first question and say some issues anyway. Maybe we'd answer it in your favor. I don't know. Assume that for the sake of argument. Uh, but uh, the second and third questions, how would we even get to them? I mean, uh, that's what I'm having trouble with. This question of proportionality has nothing to do with the temporary takings case, I would think, uh, as, as at least if it's the extreme runaround. I, I don't see the relationship nor do I see the relationship of the reweighing. I mean, I, I, I don't. I, in other words, I don't know what to do with this case if I see it as a temporary takings case. I got question one. I guess we could answer that. But how do you see the two and three relating to this case? I, Justice uh, Breyer, I have to confess that I have trouble understanding some of this case as well. I uh, I believe that. Uh, what the city is trying to do is to get this court to review the standards by which uh, takings, either permanent or temporary, are evaluated. Uh, but I, it, it feels to me as though a temporary taking where the jury looks at uh, what's gone on and looks at the period of time, as it was instructed to do, uh, whether the, uh, the action was reasonable or unreasonable, whether it was proportional or not proportional, if they determined that there was a period of time during which there was a complete taking of this property, which it appears that they did, uh, then I would agree that those other questions on the substantive merits of the case uh, become irrelevant. Well, we don't know that they did. The, the thing was put to them in, in the alternative. Yeah. Either, that's, that's, either there was a to total taking or... That's correct, Justice Scalia. They were told, uh, in the words of this Court's decision in Agins, that they could find a taking either if it, the City's actions failed to substantially advance a legitimate State interest or uh, if it denied the property owner economically viable use. Mr. Berger, if the, the, what was submerged in this general verdict is not clear to me because even before we get to the split on the takings, there was also an equal protection claim. As I understand it, the jury was told you could find a violation of equal protection or unconstitutional taking, one or the other. And how can we just uphold this verdict without saying that the award would be independently sustainable on either basis, equal protection and takings, because unless there was a special verdict, we, we could be talking about takings when, in fact, the jury went off on equal protection. 
Justice Ginsburg, the, um, as I read the record in this case, the equal protection issue uh, is not before the court. The but we don't circuit, know. Was the jury told you could find on either basis? I believe that it was, Your Honor. Do we know which one the jury did find we on? Got a, we got a general verdict from the jury. So that's even before you get to the which part of the takings analysis was it, we don't even know whether the jury ever got to a taking question. I believe that they examined each of those things independently. But we can't We're tell if it's a general verdict, they could have gone on equal protection or taking. If they went on taking, then these, these two parts, they could have gone on either or there. But if... I don't understand, unless we agree that this verdict was independently sustainable as an equal protection claim or a takings claim, then I, I don't understand how we can do anything with it. There's, there's been no claim of, of, of uh, inadequacy of the equal protection uh, ground, has there been? The, uh, I, I didn't realize that question was here. It, was, it, was, it has not been briefed in this court. It was uh, the Ninth Circuit. Uh, expressly did not deal with the equal protection issue. And it's not one of the questions presented in the, uh, in the petition, certainly. Well, that's certainly true, as, as the, uh, I believe in the, in the, uh, either in the petition or in the petition. I mean, it may be true, but I didn't know we were going to have to grapple with it. Well, my only point is we don't, we are making an assumption that the jury went on the takings claim when there's no basis for that. I mean, how much can we make up? I mean, well, so the petitioner framed the question. He chose to put it in terms of regulatory takings and not to challenge the equal protection. Your Honor, I, I believe that the verdict form did distinguish between the equal protection uh, and the takings and that the jury found that there was a then, violation. Then, then, then I could understand this case, but if, if it was just a general verdict, so we don't know. It, it was general within the takings uh, realm, so that we have these unanswered questions of which prong of the Agins formulation the jury may or may not have ruled on, and how they determined what the amount of As long as they found both, the jury found both, then I have no problem with it. The jury found both, Your Honor. Well, it found both equal protection and taking, yeah. but within the takings, that, this, is the, right. this is the, the concern I have, and I, I hope you'll address it. The first prong within the taking is not substantially advanced legitimate state interest. And I gather, given the judge's finding that there was no substantive due process violation, it was non-arbitrary, we are saying that something can be non-arbitrary that does not substantially advance legitimate state interests. Yes, Your Honor, that's, uh, that's the way it looks here. And, uh, and I frankly had not, I was here during a, I had thought that that former prong meant totally irrational. But I guess it's, I guess there's some intermediate area between being uh, non-arbitrary and not substantially advancing. Well, it seems to me, uh, Justice Stevens, that, that this case may be a, a, an excellent example of that kind of a determination, as I think that the Court of Appeals uh, properly analyzed. What we had here was a jury examining whether it was a reasonable way to achieve the city's uh, environmental goals uh, to completely frustrate the development of this property. Uh, and the jury decided that that was such an extreme uh, Misconnection between ends and means that it failed to substantially advance legitimate state interest. Even though it was not arbitrary. Uh, even though you could say that there was a reason yeah. why they did it. Of course, I suppose we could sustain your verdict by saying the judge was wrong and the jury was right. Uh, if, if the court wanted to do that, we'd certainly. You, you, but you will. Even, even if the two standards are the same. Is it in that? But, in but I don't spot? think we could say that because you did not appeal from the judge's 
withholding. I think we have to accept, assume that for purposes of this case, the judge was right. But Maybe he wasn't, but I, I we, that's the way it comes to us. Justice Stevens, you're correct that we did not appeal from, uh, from the due process uh, holding. As it turns out, uh, in hindsight, if we had appealed, the uh, Ninth Circuit's intervening decision in Armendariz would have resulted in a conclusion that we had no due process claim in any event. Uh, but that's uh, — Beyond the jury trial issue, um, there's — been some mention in the brief that the judge would have discretion to submit this to the jury anyway. Um, and so maybe that issue isn't before us either. Uh, but as, assuming the, the question is before us whether or not there is a right to jury trial, um, what is the best case you have uh, for the proposition that there is, that there is a right to jury trial on this issue under 1983? The um Well, there are no cases from this Court, I believe, that has directly dealt with um, the right to a jury trial in a 1983 case. uh, Excuse me. Go ahead. There are two cases that this Court has decided. Chauffeurs Chauffeurs is a good good discussion of the uh, the jury trial analysis. The... um, Cases that I was was thinking of uh, were Jett versus Dallas Independent School District and Hetzel versus Prince William County, both of them 1983 cases. In Jett, this court uh, determined that after the district court uh, decided a question of law as to who the appropriate uh, decision maker was in a municipality, then the remainder of the of the determination of liability, whether that decision maker's actions. Uh, resulted in Section 1983 liability would be decided by the jury. In uh, the Hetzel case, uh, decided I think just last term, uh, this court reversed the determination by the Seventh Circuit when the Seventh Circuit attempted to reduce a jury verdict, uh, and this court said you can't do that. They had a right to have the jury determine this issue, and a court of appeals. Well, I would have thought we'd look to the Seventh Amendment in a federal court case to decide whether a jury should decide a particular issue or case, and not to Section 1983. I mean, there's no indication, is there, that the drafters of Section 1983 were trying to tinker with what the Seventh Amendment required and say every case could go to a jury at plaintiff's option. Well, they certainly wouldn't have uh, had any inclination to tinker with the Seventh Amendment, uh, Justice O'Connor. No, I, I mean, it, it just, I, I don't know. I, I thought your argument on that was very strange and that we should look to the Seventh Amendment for what goes to a jury. Uh, your Honor, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sorry that it struck the Court as strange, uh, but I was doing that because of this Court's earlier decisions, which said that the first thing uh, to examine in determining whether there is a jury trial right is the statute, and only after having exhausted the statute do we turn to the Seventh Amendment itself. Uh, that's why in our brief we analyzed it both ways, uh, as did, I believe, the Court of Appeals here, uh, and concluded that the, uh, the drafters of Section 1983, when they said that a plaintiff at his or her option could file an action at law or a suit in equity or some other appropriate uh, proceeding, was giving the, the plaintiff the right to choose well, the I kind of action you want. Yeah, but you'd have to look at this 
uh, temporary takings claim and try to analogize it to something to figure out whether there's a right to a jury trial or not. I don't think you derive that from the face of 1983. Not from the face of 1983. No. In, in, in the Jett case that you referred to and the other, now, did the Court look at it, uh, the jury trial right, as a statutory thing, or did they analyze it in terms of the Seventh Amendment? The, the Hetzel case was, was clearly a Seventh Amendment analysis. Uh, the um, the Jet case, I believe, was a 1983 analysis. The 1983 required a jury trial. That I, I can't push it that far, Your Honor. The, what, uh, the court what, what? didn't directly deal with the question of whether the statute required a jury trial. What the court dealt with was how to divide the issues in the case to determine whether a judge decided the issues or a jury decided the issues. And what the court decided was that the jury would decide liability once the judge had determined as a matter of law which municipal official was the actual decision-making body. Is, is it the case at the trial that when the second half, that the city's decision to reject the plaintiff's unit did not substantially advance a legitimate public purpose, that was the second half of the basic instruction, uh, did your opponents say, Judge, we don't want to submit that to the jury? Your Honor, all of the jury instructions were drafted by the city. Well, then, everything the city wanted. Uh, how are they saying now that the error uh, is uh, that it was submitted to the jury if they didn't object? Didn't they object to a they, jury trial in the beginning? They did object oh, to, to the a whole jury thing. Trial. Yes, the whole thing. Okay, that's correct. Now, was there an element in this case when you get back to the details of the case, which had to do not with whether or not, as a matter of law, the city's decision was reasonable or not? But as to what factually happened, that is, was there uh, bad faith? Was an official saying, uh, I don't I want to protect the butterfly, uh, or was saying, I don't want to protect the butterfly, but reality, that was his motive? Or was there a factual element to this, or is it, was it simply a matter of uh, uh, the, the lawfulness of uh, a city's or the reasonableness of a, a set of facts that were not in dispute? <clears throat> Justice Breyer, let me try answering it this way, uh, because bad faith per se was not an issue that was raised directly uh, in the trial. Mm -hmm. What the jury got was the entire history of this case from the time that the first application was filed in 1981, the entire five-year history of administrative proceedings from 1981 through 1986, uh, all of the trips that uh, were made to the Planning Commission uh, all of the revisions that were requested, all of the revisions that were made, uh, and they heard uh, the, the biologist who was processing the uh, rec reclamation plan on behalf of the developer uh, testify about what he did, how he worked with the city staff, with the Coastal Commission staff, how they accepted and incorporated uh, all of the suggestions that were made by any of the expert agencies, unless they, for example, conflicted with one of the other city's requirements. Uh, I remember one place in the... Uh, in Mr. Uhas, may I just uh, interrupt to, to clarify I, what Mr. Uhas said, and if, if this is wrong, please tell me, that the motive, bad faith and motive were not made issues in this case. That is correct, Justice Ginsburg. Motive was not uh, an issue that was submitted to the jury. And what was submitted to the jury was either or. And can you explain to me now why it doesn't make any difference that we don't know whether it was the substantially justified or the no economic value that the jury, in fact, 
determine? Well, I believe, Justice Ginsburg, it doesn't make any difference because, as the Court of Appeals explained, the evidence amply supports both prongs uh, of that uh, Egan's test, and therefore, whichever way the jury went, and they may well have gone both ways, uh, it's supported by the evidence in the record. Well, how is it amply supported if the Ninth Circuit says that there's no arbitrariness within the meaning of the Due Process Clause? That's where we get tangled up. I, th I think, uh, Justice O'Connor, it has to do with the level uh, of examination that goes on in a due process case as opposed to a takings case. What if we assumed his different in your view the the inquiry of the substantial relationship to a legitimate city purpose how does that really differ from the essential due process inquiry i believe that the essential due process inquiry simply looks uh, on its face at what the city said it was doing and if the city said we are basing this determination on our conclusion that we need to protect this habitat uh, for a butterfly that nobody's ever seen there, uh, then that is sufficient to get the city past the extremely low threshold of review that happens in a due process case. I think when the matter gets submitted to a determination of whether there is a substantial advancement of legitimate state interest, the jury, in this case, or a judge if it didn't go to a jury, would be entitled to look at what the city was trying to accomplish, that is, to set up a butterfly preserve, and look at the means that it adopted to get there, essentially total frustration of the use of this 36-and-a-half-acre parcel of property, and say, is this an appropriate way to achieve that end as a matter of fact? And I think that that's a different level of examination than you get when you just look at what is the city's rationalization for what it was doing. But if we read Egan's the way Justice Stevens said he, he remembered or he, he, he thought it was intended, then we really would have a conflict, wouldn't we? Because Justice Stevens, I, I, I hope I don't uh, misstate him, but he, he said that uh, he thought of the Egan's test or had at one point thought of the Egan's test as being essentially an, an, an absolute irrationality kind of test. And if that's the case, then we really would have a conflict between what the Court found and what the jury was uh, apparently found here. It, it, it would appear that way, Justice Souter, although I have to say that the trial judge at the time that he made that ruling uh, expressly said that he didn't find it to be in conflict. No, there's certainly one can draw. I yeah. mean, the language is different, and it, maybe I just, you know, I didn't understand what was going on at the time. But the, um, the other question, I'd like to have you comment, just to be sure I know you, know, you have a full opportunity. Your opponent has said it's perfectly clear that they could not have relied on the denying economically viable use of the land because you sold it for several million dollars. What, what, what is your response to that? My response is that this is a temporary taking case and that there was a period of time that the jury found that this property had no use and no particular value to a private property owner. The fact that they actually sold the property at some Wouldn't later date. that day, always be true in any case in which there's time is required to make a zoning decision? There's always going to be a period where you can't start construction while they make up their mind. There's a total denial. Is that the same? Is there a difference between that and what happened here? Sure. Uh, the difference, and I, I agree with you, Justice Stevens, because that's what the, the Court said in First English, that there is this period of delay during normal planning, although I think that the uh, developer here in five years went sort of overboard in the normal planning process trying to find something that would satisfy the city. But what we have here as the uh, — 
trial court instructed the jury that they should focus their attention in awarding damages for a temporary taking from the time in 1986 when the permit was finally denied, the fifth permit application was denied, until sometime between then and the date of trial. So that it wasn't that normal period of planning and waiting and trying to get permits that was compensated in this case. The developer was essentially told, that's your problem. You're going to, you want through all that process, you'll have to take the heat for that one. But from the time that the city denied the permit in 1986, from there forward, the jury was instructed to determine what the period of, of delay was in allowing these people to make some productive use of either their property or its monetary equivalent and to find a monetary equivalent and award it. That's what they did. Could I ask about the — coming back to the jury question, the, uh, the objection to the, uh, to the jury request, did that go to, to uh, use of the jury for any of the issues in the case? I believe it did. Including the equal protection? I believe so, although, like Your Honor, Well, if that were the case, the objection wouldn't be sufficient if a jury would be — would be uh, appropriate for the equal protection claim, even though it was not appropriate for the uh, taking claim, I suppose. If it was not appropriate across yeah. the board, it certainly would not have been. Yeah. Um, you don't — but you don't remember — as I remember, the position was this action is not triable to a jury. This action, equal protection, due process taking — goes to a judge. I think that was — I believe it was across the board that the objection was raised. That's, that was my recollection. The um, Fifth Amendment is a critically important part of the Constitution. It was applied in this case. It was enforced in this case. Uh, as this Court said very recently in the Dolan case, the Fifth Amendment is not to be considered as some sort of poor relation in the Bill of Rights. It is just as important as the First Amendment or the Fourth Amendment. The reason that it's important is that people like this developer need to know that when they're dealing with their regulating local government agencies, that their rights are protected, uh, that they can't be simply strung along and abused uh, at, at the city's whim. Uh, I think looking at the record in this case, uh, as the uh, Court of Appeals laid it out, uh, what you have here is a, a, a pattern of abuse, uh, if you will. And I think the jury was entitled to look at that pattern uh, that existed from 1981 when the first application for use of this land was made. The judiciary in general, and this court in particular, remains the only hope of these kind of people. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Berger. The case is submitted.